You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Tonight's scripture is from Psalm 52. Psalm 52 says this. Why do you boast of evil, almighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction. Like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I'm like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is the word of the Lord. I think that rumble you hear is coming from my mic. Uh, it's got a little, uh, some kind of a thing on the end. It's supposed to reduce that noise, so hopefully it works. Also, um, I've got a little clip here. If the clip fails, you'll see my sprinting speed or my lack of sprinting speed. So Psalm 52, my name is Gary. Um, I've been around for a while at Free City Church. I'm happy to be here tonight to share from Psalm 52. Well, you heard it read, and uh, there is a title that comes with Psalm 52 that explains the background. So let's take a look at that. Before we do that, let me just lift up this time to the Lord. Father, what a wonderful time of worship we've already had. Thank you for drawing us close to your presence, close to your throne. We want to stay there, and we want to hear from you tonight. So would you speak in the power of your Holy Spirit, your word, which cuts uh, sharper than a two-edged sword, down to the bones and marrow and to the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Would you do that tonight? You know, I'm speaking to the square foot of uh, space in front of my mouth, but your Holy Spirit can penetrate hearts. Would you do that? We give this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so there's a title to Psalm 52. And it says, uh, for the choir director, so this is a, meant to be set to music. It's a mass kill of David, which means it's a psalm with an underlying moral story, moral imperative. And it says, when Doeg, the Edomite, came to Saul and said to him, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Now, how many people know what that's even kind of talking about? Okay, I see a few hands. I'll give a quick background on what that's talking about. Four names are mentioned in that little title. There's King Saul, the tribe of Benjamin. There's a not yet King David, tribe of Judah. There's Ahimelech, who is the high priest uh, that year or those years of Saul's tenure. And then there was a Doeg the Edomite. And so Ahimelech, of course, was the tribe of Levi. What tribe was Doeg the Edomite from? Any guesses? Okay, trick question. He wasn't from one of the tribes. 
he was from uh, Edom, the nation of Edom. And if you know anything about Edom and Israel, if you trace it back to the original people, you had Jacob, who uh, had the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And his name was actually changed to Israel. And you have Esau, and you trace that back, or rather Edom, you trace that back to a man named Esau. Now, Jacob and Esau were twins. Esau was the elder, so he got the birthright and the blessing by birth order. But Jacob was able to manipulate and cheat Esau out of that, so he got the ascendancy, and he got the birthright and the blessing. So there's a divide between Edom and Israel to this day of the writing, and probably to this day right now. Bitterness there. So Doeg the Edomite. That's the background of this. So um, this story, the background starts in uh, 1 Samuel 17. David had just killed Goliath, and Saul added him to his staff. Uh, but because they would come back from the battle, and the women would sing, Saul has killed his thousands, and David has killed his ten thousands, nobody wants to hear that. So because of petty jealousy, uh, Saul turned against David, and he, in fact, he tried to kill him a few times. So David picks up, and he escapes uh, with a few men with him, doesn't take any food with him, has no arms with him. And uh, his first stop was a few miles down the road at a city called Nob, N-O-B. This was the town of the high priest and all of the priests. And uh, so he stopped there to see Ahimelech and see if he could get some help. Well, he left out one vital piece of information. He didn't tell him, I'm on the run from Saul, who wants to kill me? I would come back to bite him. But Ahimelech gave him bread. He happened to give him a sword. Do you know which sword he had there? He happened to have the sword of Goliath. And he gave that to David. And David took the bread, he took the sword, and he and his men took off. Well, there was somebody else there that day, a man named Doeg the Edomite. He saw the whole exchange. Now, Doeg was probably there um, on legitimate business. He was Saul's chief shepherd. That doesn't mean he watched a few sheep once in a while. It means he was Saul's chief shepherd over all the sheep. Well, what happens in the city of Nob with the uh, high priest and all the other priests? A lot of sacrifices, a lot of sheep sacrificed. He was probably there on legitimate business, but he saw that exchange. And so he went and he told Saul all about it. Saul calls in Ahimelech and a bunch of the high priests, or a bunch of the other priests, and he accuses them of conspiracy, uh, conspiring with David against Saul. Of course, they deny it. They knew nothing of, uh, of, of David fleeing from Saul. And uh, so what does Saul do next? Let's let uh, Samuel tell the story from 1 Samuel 22, 16 through 19. So they uh, deny being in on the conspiracy. And Saul says, uh, yes, you were. And he says, you shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's household. And the king said to the guards who were attending him, turn around and put the priests of the Lord to death. Well, um, yeah, and he goes on, because their hand also is with David and because they knew that he was fleeing, but he did not reveal it to me. Of course, they knew nothing of the sort. But the servants of the king were not willing to put their hands to attack the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn around and attack the priests. Excuse me for a second. So Doeg the Edomite did turn around, attack the priests, 
and he killed that day. This never affected me this way when I was practicing this sermon, but he killed 85 of the priests that came up from Nob. He killed Ahimelech, the high priest. But he didn't stop there. Maybe I should let you read it on your own. He went to Nob, and he attacked the men and the women of the city, the children and the infants, the oxen, the sheep, everything. He put them all to the edge of the sword. This is what Doeg did. And this is the background of Psalm 52. All right. And so let's take a look at verse 1. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. And I think that second half of the verse 1 is my main point for Psalm 52. The loving kindness of God. And that word is hesed. It's been explained in this forum before, but I'll say it again, um, even though Casey has told us all about it. Hesed means, um, virtually it means loyal, kind love of God. In your Bibles, most of your Bibles, it's translated steadfast love. In my Bible, it's translated loving kindness. I might call it either one of those tonight. But the loyal, kind love of God endures all day long. And so the question to us is, how do we respond to that loving kindness of God, which endures all day long? In fact, it, it, it endures more than all day long. Many Psalms talk about the loving kindness of God, which endures forever, including Psalm 136. There's 26 verses. Every verse says the loving kindness of God is everlasting. But for our case, at least it endures all day long. And so there's a response. Remember how David responded last week in Psalm 51. He said, be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to your hesed. That's how David responded. That's how a godly man who gets into deep sin responds to the loving kindness of God. How does Doeg the Edomite respond to the loving kindness of God? Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? So how do we respond? I want to return to that question towards the end of my time here tonight. Verses 2 through 4 go into the details of, uh, of Doeg. And you know, David could have said all kinds of things about Doeg's wickedness. He could have said, you're a priest killer. He could have said, you're a baby killer. But he doesn't. He focuses in on his words and his tongue. And that's what he focuses on in this psalm. Let's take a look. How many times from, from verse 1 to verse 4 does he talk about words and tongue. Why do you boast in evil, O mighty man? The loving kindness of God endures all day long. Your tongue devises destruction like a sharp razor, O worker of deceit. Deceit. You love evil more than good. Falsehood more than speaking what is right. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. Well, I have a couple of thoughts about that. Why, given all of the wickedness, that Doeg performed with his hands, would David focus in on his tongue and on his words? I have two thoughts. One, first one is a question. Is it possible? Is it possible that the Lord sees the wickedness of Doeg's tongue in the same light as he sees the destruction of Nob, the priests and their families? And if that's true, if he does, 
How does he see the wickedness of our tongues? Do I take the wickedness of my tongue when I gossip, when I little white lies or big fat black lies or slanders or cutting uh, subtle or not so subtle cutting of other people? How does God see that? Well, you know, I, there is a difference between saying something bad and actually killing a bunch of people. I see that. But in another way, and I thought maybe I'm going too far to say, does God see the words the same way he sees the actions? But then I remembered the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 21 and 22. Let me just turn there. Remember where he says, you have heard that it was said such and such, but I say to you, let's listen to what, the, what he says. You've heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So at least in one sense, and Jesus clearly spoke to it, he does see the words of our mouth and the wickedness of our tongue in the same light that he sees the wickedness of our hands. So that was one thought. Another thought is this. There is a chain of connection between the passions of the heart, the thoughts of the mind, the words of the mouth, and the actions of the hands. And it's closely tied to what I just said, but Proverbs 4.23. Most of you know this verse. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Watch over your heart with all diligence. There is a chain of connection between those things. And I'd like to take a little detour from Psalm 52 for a few minutes to James chapter 3. In James chapter 3, it's a great teaching on the tongue. If I just wait long enough, the wind will turn for me to James chapter 3. I don't think we have that kind of time. All right, so Hebrews James 3. <clears throat> So James makes three major points about um, the tongue. This is fun. This is good. Uh, okay. Three major points. I'll go through the points, and then I'm going to give some background from, Jer uh, from James 3 to, to support those. First of all, the tongue has great power to control our lives. The tongue has great power to control our lives for good or for bad. Second point, that's the good news. Well, good or not so good. The bad news is no one can tame the tongue. No one can tame the tongue. And then the third point he makes is only one person can control your tongue, and it depends on wisdom from him in your heart to control that tongue. So first of all, the tongue has great power to control your life. Do you believe that? James gives several illustrations. First he says, if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Then he gives a couple of interesting illustrations. He says, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they may obey us, we direct their entire body as well. And you've seen it. You've seen people ride horses. Some of you have ridden horses. How do you, if you want the horse to go to the left, you pull the reins to the left. It pulls the bit which is in his tongue, or near his tongue, in his mouth to the left, and he goes to the left. You pull the reins to the right, it pulls that bit to the right, and he goes to the right. James is telling us it's the same exact thing for you. You guard your tongue. 
The things that you say, your body and your life are going to follow. The tongue has great power to control the life. He gives another example. Behold the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, stronger than these winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So this ship and currents and winds driving it, but a very small rudder. And then he compares the tongue to that rudder. And then he goes into the tongue. The bad news is no one can tame the tongue. Listen to some of these phrases from James 3. The tongue is set among our members. Is that which, uh, oh, let me go back up. It boasts of great things. It's like a fire. It's the very world of iniquity. It defiles the entire body. It sets on fire the course of our life. It is set on fire by hell. No one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. With it we bless God, but with it we curse men who've been made in the likeness of God. So we're not even consistent. Can you make it any more, uh, any more powerful, the fact that we cannot tame our tongue? It's a restless evil. It's full of deadly poison. But the third point, the tongue, just like the rudder, is merely an instrument that obeys the inclination of the pilot. And so the third section of James 3, he talks about you have, you have a choice. One of two things. We have wisdom from above that we can fill our hearts with. Or if we don't, if we turn away from it, then we're left with what is naturally there. And he calls it earthly, natural, and demonic. And it's selfish ambition and uh, bitter jealousy. And uh, so, yeah, the tongue has great power to control the life. And obviously, Doeg, and I think, too, uh, Doeg had Saul's ear. He was his chief shepherd. He obviously went and told him, so he had Saul's ear. David was also very close with Saul. It's inevitable that David and Doeg probably had some dealings, if not personally, inter interpersonal, at least close association. So this is how David knew about Doeg. Well, given the fact that the tongue has great power and we can't control it, um, we need a couple of things in this area. I feel like at least I need it, and maybe you do too. I need forgiveness. I need fortification. I need forgiveness and fortification. In Isaiah 6, Isaiah got a vision of God on the throne, and we sang a little bit about it tonight. And God was on his throne, and the foundations of the threshold were shaking. Smoke was filling the temple. And he was surrounded by angels that said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And what were the first words out of Isaiah's mouth when he saw this? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. So what did God in his mercy do? He sent one of those four angels over to the altar <coughs> to grab a, uh, a hot coal and he brought it over to Isaiah's mouth and he said, here, this coal has touched your mouth and your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. And I remember coming across that uh, passage years and years ago in a quiet time I was having and I just stopped and I said, I identify with Isaiah. Lord, that's me. I need a coal. I would, I would like you to bring a coal over and do something with my lips. So I just, I remember just leaning back, looking up, 
opening my mouth, even sticking out my tongue and saying, God, would you, would you take your coal? Would you put it on my lips? Would you burn, burn the sin away? Would you put it down in my heart and cleanse me from the inside out? And I tell you, brothers and sisters, we need forgiveness in this area. First Peter 2, verse 1 says, Therefore, putting aside all malice and all slanders, no, malice and deceits, hypocrisy, envy, and all slanders. Now, as I say those words, do those even ring a bell with you at all? Look over the last 24 hours. Look over the last week. We sin with our tongue all the time, don't we? We need forgiveness. But we need fortification too. Wisdom from above, says James. If I have two dogs, if I own two dogs in my backyard and I have them in separate cages, and day after day after day, I come out and I throw this one a porterhouse steak. And this one, I pick up a stick and just rattle his cage. Day after day, I do this. The dogs are soon hating each other. One fateful day, I bring the cages together and I lift up the doors and they fight to the death. Which of those dogs is going to win? Well, it's the one that I've been feeding every day, right? It's the same thing with us. Do we feed our souls with the wisdom from above or do we, or do we ignore that and just go with whatever wisdom is in there stuck from the beginning? Earthly, natural, demonic. That's where the words will go. That's where the tongue will go. That's where the life will go. Because the tongue has great power to control the life. All right. And so, you know, Casey talks about the reading program in our church. And he usually takes a lighthearted approach to it and jokes about the three of you who are reading it. I'm going to mention it too, but I'm not going to be so lighthearted. Man, if you're not in the reading program or just doing reading on your own in some way, you've got to. If we don't, if we turn away from the Word of God, I'm not saying you despise it, but just not getting in it, just not feeding on it day after day. Oh, what will be left will be earthly, natural, demonic wisdom. And you know that that's the case. But I'm not saying not just reading, not just hearing as you're doing now, but there's other ways of taking in the word. There's studying it, studying it deeply, memorizing from it, meditating on it. If you're not getting a steady diet and an intake of the word of God, you need to do this. You need to do it. Okay, hey, that's... uh, that's the first four verses, and it focuses on the tongue, so I wanted to focus on the tongue. So we did. Now, all right, so that's the wickedness. Then David goes on, he talks about the judgment of the wicked. And uh, let's see. I want to make sure I don't miss anything here. Um, yeah, I guess my main thought here in verse 5, God is long-suffering and patient. But when it comes time to act and time to judge, he does not fool around. Listen to these verbs. God will break you down forever. He will snatch you up. He will tear you away from your tent and he will uproot you from the land of the living. Pretty powerful verbs. When you get to my age, actually before my age, the hair will try to start growing out of all places on your ears. Um, and you got to either go with it or you got to try to keep up with it. I, so far, I'm trying to keep up with it. But the other day, 
just a few days ago, I had my glasses on. I usually don't have my glasses on when I look in the mirror because I can see well enough to see what's going on. But I had glasses on, and I looked, and there was this hair at least three-quarters of an inch long, maybe an inch, growing straight out of the top of my right ear. So I, I had been long-suffering and patient with that hair for a long time. How long does it take for that hair to grow that long? I don't know. I was long-suffering, and I was patient, mostly because I didn't know it was there. But when I saw it, it was time to act. And I uprooted it from the land of the living, right? Threw it away. I uprooted it. I snatched it away, and, and it's gone. It'll come back, but it's gone for now. So I say this in a kind of a joking way, a lighthearted way, to illustrate that God is long-suffering, and he is patient, but there is a time to judge, and when he does, there will be no question about it. Then I thought, too, well, God doesn't just judge in a hateful, vengeful, negative way. How does he feel? How does God feel when he has to judge? Well, I, I, would, I would say this. He would much rather have us repent than him judge. Listen to Ezekiel 18. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to your conduct. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions, so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away your transgressions which you've committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord. Therefore, repent and live. And if you know anything about 2 Peter 3.9, says the Lord is, is, uh, is not slow about his promises. Some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to, uh, to come to eternal life. And Jesus, when Jesus was laying into the Pharisees and the scribes in Matthew 23, eight times, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, eight times. But at the end of that ringing condemnation of the Pharisees and the scribes, what does he say? He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who are sent to you, how often I wanted to gather you together the way a hen does um, its chicks under its wings. But you would not. Even in the midst of a ringing judgment, he just voices his sadness and his sorrow that he has to judge them like that. And the God the Father is the same way. But he does. But he does judge when he has to. All right. Well, then verses 6 and 7. The righteous will... The righteous respond in this way. When they have seen Doeg the Edomite, they've seen the wicked man's actions, they've heard his words, and then they see the judgment. Here's how they respond. The righteous will see, they will fear, they will laugh, and they will process. It doesn't say process, but they will see, fear, and laugh, and they will say this. Behold the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and was strong in his evil desire. And so they process in their minds and they say, this is what happens when a man turns away from the loving kindness of God and he boasts in his evil desires. This is what they do. And I want to zero in on one of those words. They will see, they will fear, they will laugh, and they will think through it on their own and make their decision. And I want to focus on this word fear 
Um, we know that perfect love casts out fear. And Jesus often said, do not fear when the disciples were afraid. But there is clearly in the Bible a fear that we are told to cultivate, that we are to fear. Let us work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus said, hey, I will tell you who to fear. Fear the one who not only has the power to kill the body, but to throw you into hell um, afterwards. I tell you, fear him. And so I want to talk about that just a little bit. Um, and, and I'm not going to go into a great exposition, but I want to say this. The fear that we're told to cultivate, author Jerry Bridges calls it a reverential awe or an awestruck reverence for God. Are we cultivating it? It's the awe of a young enlisted airman for a four-star general whose responsibilities in life are completely beyond his comprehension at that point. It's when you went outside at night and for the first time looked up and saw the stars and were struck by the immense, incomprehensible vastness of space when you saw the Milky Way and felt so small. And remember that the nearest star of those hundred billion or so stars in the Milky Way is four light years away. Light which travels 186,000 miles per second, traveling for four years to the nearest star. One star out of a hundred billion of our galaxy, of which it's one of a hundred billion galaxies, all of which are marked off in the span of God's hand. And so he brings it down. And, you know, I was in the Air Force for 33 years, and the stuff I did is now called the Space Force. And so we put these mighty rockets up and put satellites in space and put them in orbit around the Earth. Well, in this economy, you couldn't even see anything <laughs> that we were doing. All in the hand of this awesome God. And I tell you, this is the God we need to cultivate a fear for. A love, yes, but mingled with a fear of someone who is totally beyond our comprehension. You've read in the Bible um, what men, godly men did when they were suddenly in the presence of God or the glorified Christ. Typically, they fell to their face. This is, this is Isaiah 6. This is Daniel 8, Daniel 10, Ezekiel 1, Revelation 1, when John saw the resurrected Christ and the glorified Christ. You fall to your face. You can't speak. Probably hyperventilating. Can't hardly breathe. In the presence of this God. And I tell you we should cultivate that kind of fear. All right. Well that's how the righteous respond. They saw the wicked man. They saw his judgment. They respond correctly. And then David compares himself and he says. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I'm green. Living and growing. I'm like an olive tree, producing. And I'm in the house of God. I'm secure. I'm living, I'm growing, I'm producing, I'm secure. That is my life compared to Doeg the Edomite who just got broken down, snatched up, torn away, and uprooted from the land of the living. And so why is David this way? And how does he intend to stay this way? Here's what he says. The second half of, of verse 8. It's because I trust in the loving kindness of God 
forever and ever. I will give you thanks forever because you have done it. And I will wait on your name for it is good in the presence of your godly ones. So what does he do? Why is he, why is he green, living, producing, and settled and secure in the house of God? Because he trusts forever and ever in God's loving, loyal, kind love. Because he gives thanks forever, because he's done it, and because he waits on his name. We talked about the negative side of the tongue. This is the positive. While the we looked at verse 5, and it looks like there's this wicked man, God saw it, he judged, and it was done. Well, God doesn't always operate on that timeline. That's how we like him to act, but he doesn't. So until he does, are we willing to abide in the house of God and trust and thank and wait until the dough eggs and the souls of the world um, are taken care of by God? All right. I want to close with, uh, with a story. I want to go back to that thought. I want to go back to that main thought. How are we responding to the loyal, kind love that God holds out to us? How have we responded and how are we responding tonight? Um, <clears throat> how many people are familiar with the names James Porter and George Wilson? James Porter. Anybody familiar with those names? I see a guy nodding his head. Okay, probably not many though. James Porter and uh, George Wilson were partners in crime. And in 1829, they robbed the mail coming out of the city of Philadelphia. They held the uh, postal carrier at gunpoint and put his life in jeopardy. They robbed the mail and they made off with it. That was late 1829. These were... Uh, Felonies that carried the death sentence back then. And so in 1830, they were tried uh, for their charges. And they were, they were found guilty. And James Porter was hanged by the neck until dead on the 2nd of July of 1830. George Wilson had some influential friends. And they took his case all the way to President Andrew Jackson, who actually gave him a presidential pardon. Now, it wasn't a full pardon. He commuted his sentence from a death sentence to a 20-year prison sentence. And George Wilson, in his infinite wisdom, after considering it, turned down that pardon. Don't know all the details why, but here's a president who gave him a pardon, and he refused it. And so, George Wilson, it could be said that he died not just for the crimes that he committed, not just for the sins that he committed, but for the pardon that he refused. And so I've, I've talked a lot tonight about uh, the tongue and uh, the negative parts of the tongue, like Doeg displayed, the positive parts of the tongue that David displayed. I will thank, I will trust, I will wait. Um, but there's some of us who are not even ready to respond to that yet because we've not yet responded to the initial loving kindness of God that he holds out to us. Like President Jackson held out a pardon that was refused, God the Father holds out a pardon through the work of his son Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. How are we responding? How have we? Have we responded to that? That's his promise. That's his offer. The problem is we're over here somewhere. And Paul says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's all. And then he goes on and says, the wages of sin is death. Then the author of Hebrews tells us, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. That's not a pretty picture. We have an offer of a pardon. We're beset with sin, death, judgment, and hell. And we fall short, and we fall short, and we fall short. And what we could not do from our side, God did from his side when he gave his son, Jesus Christ. Characterized by love, and Romans 5.8 says God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't say, listen here, you do your best. You come halfway towards me, I'll come halfway towards you. No, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Wonderful picture. There's God over here with the offer, us over here full of sin and judgment, and then Jesus Christ, the bridge in between. So how do I respond? There are some here tonight who have not responded to that picture. How would you respond? Well, not, maybe you can hear this. Revelation 3.20, Jesus says, talking to the church of the Laodiceans, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And Paul says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And Peter says in Acts 2, be saved from this perverted generation. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And so I would just say, in closing, if there's anybody here tonight that has never responded initially to that loving, loyal, kind love of God, I would invite you to do that tonight. Confess your sin, Acknowledge that Jesus died for that sin. Receive him as Lord and Savior. Ask him to come in. Open that door that he's knocking on and ask him to come in. And so as the prayer team makes your way up, um, I would ask anybody in that category would come up and just pray. They would be so happy to pray for you and help you come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ and a saving knowledge. Um, you, can, you can pray right where you sit. But I'm going to say this. In the in the time to come, as you look back on tonight, it might mean more to you that you prayed with another person. So let me close in prayer. And Ethan, you can come on up. Prayer team, come on up. And I'm going to probably be standing just over here. If you want to pray with me, I'll be available as well. And I've got a mask. So Lord, thank you for this time tonight in your word. It's a precious time. Thank you that although... There are Edoms, or there are, uh, yeah, Doeg, the Edomites in the world who ignore you and ignore your loving kindness. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be like that. We want to respond to you. And whether we need you, we need you for initial salvation or whether we need you just for forgiveness, for the way we've misused our tongues and other things, we, we pray that you'd forgive us. And Lord, if there's anybody here who needs to respond and ask you to come into their life, would they, just, uh, would they do that tonight and come to know you as Lord and Savior for the first time? 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name, for his sake, amen.